Tory Radio. The best news, interviews and much more. Today it's my great pleasure to be talking to the Member of Parliament for Western Supermare, John Penrose. John, thank you for talking to us today. Happy to, happy to be here. Firstly, congratulations on your re-election. How does it feel to come back to the Commons with so many new Conservative colleagues? It feels uh, wonderful, and not, not least because the last Parliament was actually a pretty unhappy place. Um, no one was really having much fun. Um, and and it got to the point where, because of this awful Brexit division, uh, you know, people who've been friends for years couldn't look each other square in the eye. Um, and so that's mainly over now. Um, and we've also got you know, more than 100 brand new, you know, brilliant Conservative mm. colleagues um, for places that you know, none of us dead guess might be conservative in, uh, by now. And it's, it's, so it's just wonderful all round. Yeah. I, I always like to say this is the first time there's been such a majority since I've been able to vote. And given that I'm 45 this year, doesn't this present quite an opportunity for, for a conservative government to be, I guess, quite radical and affect some change? Well, I think... Yes, I think it does create an opportunity. It also creates some some you know, dangers about you know, doing the wrong things. But I think I think that you know, whatever the majority had turned out to be, you know, this is a moment when any government has got to be radical. You know, Brexit is a turning point um, in our nation's story. Whether whether you voted for it or not, um, whether you like it or not, it is that. And uh, and we are mad if we don't. Uh, you know, recognise that fact and say Britain post-Brexit needs to be different, should be different, and if we don't do it right, it'll be different in the wrong ways. If we get it right, it can be different in good ways. I've read, I think, what I'd call them some some policy prescriptions that you've already come up with. Uh, I read a piece recently that you've written on the subject of our overseas territories yeah. and giving them some representation in Parliament. Yeah. Could you tell, I guess, listeners a little bit more about what, what you envisage on that? Yeah, no, happily. It's, it's a, I mean, there are 14 overseas territories, and that's everywhere from Tristan de Kuna to Gibraltar or the Falkland Islands and, and a whole load of other places like that too. Um, and the point about it is that, you know, They've got this sort of history which you know, goes right the way back to the British Empire. I mean, it's that old. Um, but you know, at the start of the 21st century, actually, we should be saying, look, Britain post-Brexit wants to become, should become, I think, an international global citizen, a free trading you know, uh, you know, nation. And uh, one of the ways that we can just demonstrate to the rest of the world that we're serious about it is by saying, look, you know, we've got these 14 overseas territories, they're scattered around the globe. Um, they could be not some piece of post-imperial afterglow. They could actually be a really key part of sort of trading posts scattered around the globe, part of the United Kingdom, um, and you know, part of the country's future in quite a dynamic and interesting new way. And so the idea is just simply to say, look, these 14 overseas territories um, don't have to do anything they don't want to. This has obviously got to be done um, if it's right for them with their consent. But we should at least make the offer to them to say, do you, uh, each of them, want to become fully-fledged country members of the United Kingdom, just like Scotland or Wales or England or Northern Ireland? Um, if you do, you're very, very welcome. You don't have to if you don't want mm. to, but if you do, um, and that means that 
you would then send MPs to Westminster. You'd have their own uh, devolved governments like the Holyrood Parliament, like the Cardiff Assembly. Um, and many of them have got something quite close to that already. So it's not a huge step in that respect. But what it would mean is that if they're fully fledged members of the United Kingdom, then at that point they're part of the United Kingdom's internal market. It means that I'm told that Tristan de Kuna lobster is a delicacy. I can't say I've ever had one myself, but you know, uh, that, 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 uh, and that you then get internal free trade in those sorts of things. So it's good for their. Um, for, for their economies is good for the UK not just symbolically because we're becoming this global free trading nation but also because it you know it, it adds it adds a uh, you know um, strength and depth to our internal market ourselves and interestingly as well from a green perspective from an environmental perspective you know, an awful lot of these overseas territories have really important um, marine uh, what could be marine national parks effectively mm. um, around them they're all many of them are part of the plans for this thing called the blue belt which we're going to protect you know, hundreds of square miles of of really important um, uh, marine environmental uh, areas um, and that would just integrate that even more firmly into the united kingdom mm -hmm. you know uh, more generally do you think critics will say will come and say to you that well, hang on, and let's say if you had a, a member of parliament for, for the Falkland Islands, you know, what, would they be able to vote on matters just solely related, let's say, to the you know, United Kingdom education policy, things like that, that, that are thrown up it, it's under a, our existing no, arrangement? It, it's, 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 a, it's a very important practical question, that one. Um, and in fact, there's, there's already an, exam, an answer in place because uh, a couple of years ago now, um, Parliament had to face up to this issue about you know, how do you deal with what was used to be called the, Mid the, the West Lothian question, which is uh, what do you do if um, Westminster is, is debating something like education where in Scotland it's devolved to the Scottish Parliament? And the answer, which has now been running for a couple of years pretty successfully, is something called English Votes for English Laws. And that means that if it's a UK-wide issue, then everybody in the Westminster Parliament votes on it. Um, but if it's a devolved issue, then the Scottish MPs can speak in the debate, but they can't necessarily vote. Or the same goes for the Welsh MPs, same goes for Northern Irish MPs. It's a pretty pragmatic, pretty practical way of dealing with it, but it does work. And the same thing would therefore apply depending on whatever the devolution settlement was for Tristan de Kuna, which might be you know, similar to but different from yep. Scotland. And, and the same rules would apply in that way. Have any of the overseas territories that you know raised this issue that they'd like it? Or is it just, as you say, it's an offer that they could pick and choose as they... Well, look, I mean, there's 14 of them and they, they all have you know, different sets of, 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 uh, of starting points and needs. So my expectation would be... Um, that some of them would say, actually, thanks very much, we're very happy as we are, mm. and you wouldn't want to force them to do anything they're not happy with, so they could stay as they were. Um, but one or two of them might turn around and say, actually, this really makes sense for us right now, we'd like to do this. Um, but the important thing is, it's an offer that should be you know, made in an open-handed, generous way and put on the table, and then you know, each individual overseas territory can reach its own decision, doesn't have to rush. Um, and you know, what, what the answer was you know, this year might be different in five years' time, depending on how the, the future unfolds. I've had a chance to read a publication that you've written, and it's on the table here as we both speak. Here's, here's one we prepared it earlier. <laughs> a Shining City Upon a Hill, Rebooting Capitalism for the Many, Not the Few. Can you initially just give listeners, and we'll uh, point them in the direction of where they can go and read it themselves, but give a brief overview as to what it's looking at, and I guess you know, some of the, just the broad issues that it's hoping to solve. Yeah, I mean, it, well, the simple answer to, to finding a copy is 
um, have a look at my website, johnpenrose.org, um, and that you'll find a copy of it there. And the advantage is, if you go to my website, it's free, so uh, so there won't no one will have to pay anything to, to have a look at the thing. Um, but basically, what it's saying is, look, since the the two thousand and eight banking crash, um, you know, the way that our economy has been working and the way that therefore our society has been working, because you know the, the the two are combined and inter- entwined. Um, has been leaving quite a lot of people feeling pretty unhappy. Um, so if you are under the age of about 35 or 40, um, you know, it's difficult to afford housing, whether you're trying to rent or to buy. Um, if, you are, um, if you are in work, um, for many people, uh, certainly until fairly recently, um, wage growth was pretty, pretty minimal, um, and some people felt left, left out or left behind. And at the same time, you could also see a tiny number of, I'll call them merchant princes, you know, in- incredibly rich individuals, whether or not they are people who run um, Silicon Valley firms or swan around in flash cars in, uh, in the West End of London, wherever it might be. Um, at, the sa- at the same time as an awful lot of people are working absolutely flat out, working like stinks to support their families, doing the right thing, and life hasn't really been getting very much better very fast. And at the same time, they can see some other people doing incredibly well at the same time. So there's this sense that actually, you know, the the system hasn't been working terribly well for too many people. And for the man or the woman in the street, a lot of people have been feeling left behind. And the point I'm making is, look, this isn't something which is new. And, you know, this happens to capitalism and to free societies like Britain um, every generation or so. And it happened all the way through the 19th century, periodically. Something went wrong. There was a banking crash or a... Um, or, or some sort of a serious recession or a war or whatever it might be. And, um, and each time, society had to turn around and say, actually, we've got to upgrade the system. We've got to upgrade capitalism, and we've got to make sure that it works for modern society. So it isn't new, this feeling. It's new to most of us because it's the first time it's happened in most people's lifetimes. But actually, if you talk to historians, it's been happening for donkey's years. But it's up to us as the current generation to which it's happening to respond. We can't just assume that capitalism will sail on happily. There are an awful lot of people out there, Corbynistas not least, who are turning around and saying, um, the entire system is broken. Um, and the only answer, if you are a you know, ultra lefty Corbynista, is to throw out capitalism, overthrow the instruments of oppression and, and move to a socialist nirvana. And now, I think that's rubbish, um, and history says that's rubbish. The answer is not to throw out capitalism, the answer is to fix capitalism, and that's what every successive generation has had to do, and it's our turn. And so this, this, uh, this policy paper just comes up with half a dozen ideas about, now it's our turn, um, what are we going to do to fix it? Here's half a dozen ideas about how we could fix it. Well, so that leads on to sort of my, my next question, where I start to focus in on, on some of the things you said, which I found, which I particularly found interesting. So I hope listeners will. I focused in on one statement in the "Why Re- Reboot Capitalism" section, uh, where you wrote, "Populists of both the left and right are exploiting an ideological vacuum, fanning the flames, etc." Uh, what sort of thing are you referring to when you wrote this? So, um, the problem which we got is that. And the last, the last two general elections have done this. Um, the arguments in the general elections, they've been about Brexit and other things as well, of course. But quite a lot of the, um, of the economic argument has been, you know, Corbyn saying we need to go back to the policies of the 1970s and renationalise railways and renationalise energy for companies and all these sorts of things. And, and the Conservative Party. Um, has been happy to refight those battles as if we were all still in the era of Thatcher, 
And while that was you know, a happy time for, for many older Conservatives, it doesn't really carry much weight with people who weren't even alive when Thatcher was, was, was around. So we haven't retooled our arguments. We haven't modernised our arguments. We can't point out examples of you know, um, socialist failure in Britain, um, which, is, you know, uh, which has happened in most people's lifetimes now. And, and therefore, it's just left a sort of a, a gaping hole in the argument where, where Labour's been looking backwards, we haven't been looking forwards well enough. And as a result, right the way across Europe, where versions of this has been happening, you're seeing populists, and whether or not it's the five-star um, movement in, in Italy, um, whether or not it's Podemos, whether or not you know, there are equivalents in, in Austria, there are equivalents in Hungary, there are equivalents in Spain. Mm. Um, and of course, here we've had, well, I suppose the Corbynists are quite populist, and we've also had um, you know, the Brexit Party um, had elements of populism to it too. Um, yeah, if, if the sensible centre doesn't come up with the answers and doesn't fill that gap, um, then the vac- you know, politics abhors a vacuum, and into that vacuum, into that gap that we are leaving, rush people with daft ideas. Um, and the daft ideas can be quite dangerous daft ideas, um, and you end up with, you know, re- I don't think I'm sort of telling anybody a state secret to say the last couple of years have been pretty divisive. You know, British society has been horribly divided, um, and it's time to start healing. You, you seem to be... Also, uh, and you can correct me if I've got the wrong impression, critical of big companies with a view that as companies get bigger, customers or indeed their rights get smaller. So I think it's quite topical given sort of what's coming out at the moment. Do you think that government should be tackling Goliaths like Amazon, be it on making them pay their fair share of tax? And you mention enormous natural monopolies like Google or Facebook. What's the solution to yeah. deal with those? Uh, the first thing I should say is I'm, I'm not I'm not sort of anti big businesses per se. I mean, an awful lot of big businesses are incredibly successful and they contribute to you know jobs in this country, wealth creation. They they underpin an awful lot of of, of your listeners' um, pension schemes and all that sort of stuff. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of businesses, big and small. Um, but what we've also got to be careful of is that you know, we have competition laws. In this country for a reason and the reason why we have competition laws is to make sure that consumers customers are always king yeah um, and that we can't be ripped off and it's everything you know, it's some really basic stuff which we take for granted now but you know really matter like um, if you order something online and you get it and it and you don't want it you've got 28 days to send it back and they and they can't make you keep it if you send it back inside mm-hmm. that time it's a basic legal right most of us don't even think twice about it um, but that's actually a rather core piece of making the customer king Ditto, for example, um, if you see something that's on sale, there's a law that says it, they can't say it's on sale unless it's actually been for sale at a higher price for at least a month before that. And again, you and I don't notice that, but it's absolutely core cool to make sure that we can't get ripped off and that we can trust what they're telling us. And all I'm saying is that there are an awful lot of those rules now which are looking a bit long in the tooth. They're looking a bit old fashioned because most of them were written. I mean, the last time we had a, those laws were updated was pre-1998. Um, and that means that all those laws were written before the internet, and before email was common, before Uber or Google or Facebook even existed. Um, and unsurprisingly, if they're not, if they're written in an analog pre-digital world, you know they aren't necessarily up to date for a post-analog, currently digital world, and they just need to be updated. So, quite a lot of this is just saying, how do we take things that we take for granted in the old world? and make sure that they still bite just as hard to make customers king so we are in charge, we can't get bossed around by 
by you know big businesses in a post digital world just to make sure that you know that the that we don't lose our lose our mojo. You, you, you raise an issue which I never thought of, but 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 it, it, I found it quite interesting. You look at the impact that online has had. So, for example, uh, people who shop online, you mentioned about maybe less inclined to swap to a rival firm, and I think that's very accurate. That my wife signed up to a, a pass that gives us free delivery I think for Sainsbury's because we both commute to London and don't get back until seven eight o'clock at night. It's really convenient yeah. that we can do that. But it means that we have never looked at what Tesco's as the little yeah, exactly. online. So do you, do you, do you, some people may say that not well for me not tracing around a supermarket is the is the payoff for doing that. But actually, are you suggesting that that actually can stifle competition because it ties you in and the shopping habits have changed, so you actually don't see any competition because you've stuck with one provider. Yeah, well, your example is a really good one. So. Um, Lots of us do versions of what you've just described, you know, whether it's buying our groceries or, or clothes or whatever it might be, and there'll be loyalty cards and there'll be online preferences that you've got set up, and it's just all familiar and it's nice and set up. And we do that for a reason. It's, it's better for most of us that way. It saves us a lot of time. It means you don't have to say, no, I like a different shade of pink jersey than, than blue jersey, because they know all that stuff already, and it just makes life better. That's what modern life is, and, and I don't think most people will want to go back. So there's huge advantages to it, but we just need to remember that it also comes with a few downsides too. And, and the downside is that if you're not careful, um, the companies that know that you're using their sites, if they design those sites really well, they know that you're unlikely or you're less likely than you used to be to go to a rival. And if they then start taking you for granted, you know, what happens, very few companies do this, but a few do this already, and what happens if they say, I know that you know, this customer, John Penrose in, in my case, um, is very unlikely to switch, so I'm going to charge them 5% more than anybody else because I know I can get away with it because I know they won't switch. Now, all of a sudden, if I'm paying 5% more for exactly the same jersey or, um, or, or packet of cornflakes than you are, I'm being ripped off. I don't even know I'm being ripped off, and I'm being ripped off because I'm loyal, because I'm, because I'm a sticky customer, because I'm less likely to move. That's not something which could ever have happened in a pre-digital world, and it's the downside to all that great convenience that you and I have just been talking about. And we just need to make sure that the downsides don't get out of control while we all enjoy the huge upsides and the benefits which the new world brings. We, we, we've already touched upon this already in, in some of your answers. You, you look at the economy and generational justice. You make the suggestion that, that Britain's economy can be unfair to everyone younger than around 45. As And as I guess I'm just coming up to being 45. I guess you I just you sneak, are on the cusp. I sneak in. <laughs> can you just explain a little bit about why is that the case and what do you think needs to be done to address that? Yeah, I mean, look, this, this is one of those sort of a, um, accidental things. I don't think anybody has sat down and planned to make society unfair in this way. But what we've ended up with is a situation where um, you know, most of the housing um, is owned by people who are um, you know, of, of an older generation, um, and the prices are pretty much unaffordable um, to buy for people certainly under 35, um, unless they're very lucky or, or, or in a very small number of very highly paid um, professions. Um, and the prices of rental, um, even if you're not trying to buy to own um, are also very high as well. Now, there's a whole series of things that we can do. I mean, housing is the worst example of that, but it's not the only one, but you know, housing is the thing you've got to fix first. Um, and there are a number of things you can do. You can uh, take a whole series of steps to try and uh, just build an awful lot more houses, but build them in the right places where people want to live, 
um, and to free up the housing market. I, I, I can go into more detail if people want to, but it's there's a whole series of things you can do to just make sure that there's more houses available for people to either buy or to rent. That will reduce the price and it'll make it much more affordable for anybody of not just 40 or 45, but also 30 or 35 as well. So that's that's kind of step one. But step two is to say, yeah, we've got this, we've got an aging society. We're all living longer, that's great. Um, and as a result, there's this thing which, the, the, which they call the demographic time bomb. In other words, there are gonna be fewer and fewer of us taxpayers paying our taxes to support the services which we've all promised to our parents and our grandparents when, now they're retired. And that means that if you've got fewer and fewer taxpayers paying for these things, you know, it gets more and more expensive per taxpayer to fund all the things that we promised to granny and grandpa. Um, and so we're actually we're storing up all sorts of trouble for ourselves because if we're not really careful, then the costs of the health service, the costs of the state pensions, the costs of state benefits to retired folk um, are going to get more and more and more, not because anyone's done anything evil, but actually because we're all living longer. And this is a, you know, it's a great high quality problem to have, but it's nonetheless going to cause a problem. And the costs are going to fall ever more heavily on a smaller and smaller slice of society, which is the people who are still below you know, below retirement age who are, who are working. And that just makes the, you know, a, a really nasty choice because it means either uh, taxes are going to have to go up mm-hmm. um, for the people who are still working in order to pay for you know, what, what we've all promised to granny and grandpa, um, or alternatively, we're going to have to um, welsh on the promises. We're going to have to you know, um, give up on the promises that we've made to granny and grandpa and not deliver what they're expecting. And, and that's not pretty uh, very attractive either. Um, either for current generations of granny and grandpas, but also for anybody who wants to be a granny and grandpa themselves, you know, in, in, you know, in, a, in 50 years' time. So we've got to start thinking about how we're going to solve that problem. And one of the things that I think we can do is we can set up a, a national savings fund, if you like. Uh, it, it's a sovereign wealth fund. Lots of other countries have them. Um, and if you start investing a little bit now and letting it grow, it's rather like saving for a pension. But if we do this at a national scale, it means that um, when we have twice as many pensioners in 20 years' time as we have today, um, that we'll be able to afford it because we'll have some savings put by, as opposed to expecting everything to be paid for by the next generation of taxpayers of whom there won't be nearly enough. Uh, and I, now it's, it's, a, it's a subject that just interests me quite personally. It's uh, onto information and its provision, I guess particularly in elections. I remember when I said in 2005 that was going to be the internet election and it, and it wasn't and, and it's been said so many times but I think the internet did play a key role certainly in the referendum mm-hmm. and I think it played quite a big role in, 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 for good or bad in the last election because more and more of us get our information and indeed news online and the very fact that I'm doing more and more podcasts yeah. I guess is an example of that it's yeah. of its time. You are, you are the future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was once anyway. Uh, you, you write uh, maybe out of context online information is far less trusted and, 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 and reliable and, and when talking about the existing legal framework so what do you think exactly needs to be done in terms of making what we read or indeed what we listen to online more trusted? So yeah, this is really important because uh, yeah, in the old days, before digital, um, you, there were a whole series of you know, uh, um, you know, national newspapers and there was national broadcasters and those sorts of things. And you, you, even if they were even if they weren't terribly ba- balanced in every case, you kind of knew where they were coming from. And there were some basic standards that they would they, they'd try and check the stories were at least vaguely accurate and they weed out the stuff 
which was completely made up before it ever got to being in front of you or me when we picked up our daily paper or turned on the telly. Um, that still happens to an extent, um, but there's old chunk of stuff that can pop up in your Facebook feed or wherever it might be, um, that hasn't been through that process. Um, and some of it's entirely reputable, some of it's entirely right, and some of it is you know, citizen journalism of you know, somebody who's at a demonstration in Hong Kong and sees a piece of you know, um, you know, somebody getting beaten up by, by you know, people who might or might not be you know, um, uh, you know, uh, policemen or, or, or uh, agents of some other, uh, some other uh, uh, official branch. And they can take the photos on their phone, take the video on their phone, post it on the internet. That can be really, really powerful and you know, full of truth and, and, a, and a crucial part of modern society too. All of that's great. But equally, there's some people out there who are deliberately making up um, outright lies and propaganda in order to cover up the truth. And, and you know, there have been examples of that, which people will think of for themselves as well. Um, and there's, a, you know, there's disinformation campaigns either run by, um, by foreign states um, or by in some cases by organized criminals trying to cover up this or that um, or just by people with a particular political axe to grind um, everything from people who think who are trying to argue that um, that that, uh, that medical vaccinations are dangerous when they're not through to all sorts of other things too so there's a whole load of stuff out there which is just wrong or very slanted and I just think it would be helpful for all of us um, to be able to tell easily if it's coming from a source that you know, if it's coming from uh, a news organisation that you and I know and we trust, Tory Radio, for example, um, then then that's fine. We, we kind of know that it's going to be okay. But if it's coming from someone we've never heard of before, how do we know that it's right? And so what I'm suggesting is that, that you know, people like Facebook, people like, um, like Google um, should, as part of their algorithms, just have a basic you know, trustability score. Is this from a source which other people have found to be trustworthy in the past? Um, and when they say there's been a small earthquake in China, it probably is because there's been a small earthquake in China rather than because someone's made something up. And if, you can, if it comes with a basic trust score, if you like, which they can work out in the same way as um, you know, that they, they work out how to send you or I things that we might be interested in because that's, how they, yep, that's yep. how they send us things for our, that, that pop up in our, in our news feed. If they can come up with a trust score as well and just say, you know, this, has got, this is highly likely to be trustworthy, goodness knows if it's trustworthy, highly likely to be completely made up, you and I can you know, use that information and say, well, you know, we'll treat this as if it's Harry Potter and it's fiction, um, or we'll treat it as something which is likely to be true, and therefore if they say that there's a riot going on in Hong Kong, um, actually that's really important and I'm going to believe it. But at the moment, we don't know what to believe, and the old system where somebody in a news studio would make the decision for us about whether or not it's likely to be true, that isn't there anymore, and we've got to replace it with something so that we know... If what if if it's fictional fact, I mean at the, at the last election there was you know some some suggesting that actual claims made in an election needed to be proven for fear that they could be lies. But I mean, wouldn't you say that that's an impossible task given that these days I think quite often people are conflating opinions with facts. So for example, the Labour Party may have totally believed, as they seem to have every election, that there's. 24 hours to save the NHS, yet in five years' time, the NHS will still be here. So 
where does that cross between being a lie yeah. and in an election it's just very hard and I know there were programs on about how you know the, the the facts need to be checked and if politicians lie to us they need to be taken to account but but elections are often fought on opinions not facts I, 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 I think I think you're right and, and I have two two reactions to that um, the first one is that actually you know, a, a large chunk of the of the process of an election campaign is all about picking out the rubbish from the truth. Um, and that's what that's what the public debate is. It goes on for six or eight weeks. Some people are so hacked off with the whole thing they switch off. But that's what it is. And that's when that's when, you know, people who get interviewed on Newsnight or, or wherever it might be, you know, both sides get a chance to put their arguments and the interviewers, you know, uh, have a sort of forensic approach. And then individual voters have to make up their minds about whether or not I believe what this character from whichever party they are from, do I believe that they're telling the truth or not? And even if I think they're not telling the truth, do I care or, or do I want to vote for them for other reasons? Um, so, so yes, that's what an election campaign is all about and should be. And actually, if you want to have people forming a fact-checking alliance to say, to say is the fundamental statements they're making true or false, that will help that process. I'd be all in favour of it. What I don't think it does, though, is I don't think it solves um, the, the sort of the... The basic background debate that goes on all the time outside general election campaigns. I mean, general election campaigns are six or eight weeks. We hope every four or five years, rather than more often than that. Although we had them more, more frequently recently, um, and actually, it's really important for not just British society but for most open democracies. You know, Western democracies, um, North America, large chunks now increasingly of, South, uh, of Asian democracies too. Um, it's really important that all of us know what is likely to be true because if you have a solid fact base you have a much more rational debate you have a debate that's based on truth um, and you have a debate that's therefore based on things I know I can trust and societies that have that um, on not just their political debate not just on their news but also when somebody advertises a product and says that it you know turns your hair blue or or, or, or does whatever it's going to do um, that has to be truthful too but societies that have that um, generally are happier, they are um, faster growth economically, they, are, they have you know, better social outcomes, they're just better. Um, and so there's a reason why we all care about truth, not just because we don't like being lied to, but because actually it has a whole series of practical outcomes and that's why it's worth having. And you don't just want it in election campaigns, although you certainly want it then, you want it all the time. And that's why my point about anything that pops up into your newsfeed, whether there's an election or not, if you just knew that it was likely to be true or likely to be rubbish, it's going to improve all our lives all the time, not just when, we th when we're thinking about how to vote. Well, we're going to touch upon, uh, in a future section, uh, the phrase fake news, but we'll come to that a little bit later. Yeah. Uh, I was very interested in, in your customers' kings and queens area, mm. uh, an issue certainly close to many people's hearts, uh, close to my heart, it's it's the trains. Mm. Uh, you write about something called the Cooperative Access Railway franchise of broken up so passengers ha have a choice and, and you propose that this could start on, on my route, the East Coast. So there you go. That's why it interests me, very personal, <laughs> very selfish. I'm going to talk about that. In fact, you know, when both my wife and I uh, buy a season ticket and commute our household is paying £20,000 for two season tickets that's, so, that's a yeah, lot of money yes, yeah. it's, it's, you've got to earn a bit so, yeah. so Tory Radio is going to have to pay its way one way or another but we've had you know in the 
over the time we've been doing it, we've had GNER, we've had Virgin Trains, we've had a nationalised East Coast Trains, and we've had a nationalised LNER. Some, you know, some private companies, some not private companies. Uh, the service uh, is similar to what it's always been. We've finally got brand new trains, which are possibly more uncomfortable than the previous ones. But but hey, they they seem to be working. Though they've got a few faults. The price keeps going up. I don't bemoan it because I'm not not sure that people who don't use the sh- the train should should be subsidising my choice. But convince me anything that that you're suggesting can make it better for me in terms of price, choice, no, or service. To. Happy to. So look, um, at the moment. Uh, we will all, all your listeners and you and I, um, we'll, we will all have experienced the thing where you're standing on a platform, you're waiting for the train, and then suddenly this tannoy, this pre-canned voice coming on saying, we're terribly sorry to announce that the, the XYZ train has been cancelled. We're sorry for the inconvenience. And, and the fact that it's pre-recorded uh, statement saying we're sorry for the inconvenience means you know that they're not sorry. <laughs> There's nobody with a pulse who's sorry at all. Um, when they're all hiding and you can't find anyone's uh, front, what's you, going on. But, you got it, exactly. Yeah. So, so wouldn't it be good um, if... Yeah, let, let's let's say that that, that that cancellation is caused because there's a strike. Yeah, um, there are other causes of cancellations, obviously, but let's let's just for the sake of this uh, this example, it's a strike. And now, at the moment, if there's a strike, um, then all those trains are cancelled by you know, run by Virgin or NER or whoever it may be, um, and you've got no choice. Um, in almost every other walk of life, if you and I walk into the supermarket and Kellogg's has gone on strike, we can find someone else who's going to sell us some cornflakes. Or we can find, you know, if, if Nestle had gone on strike, we can find someone else who's going to sell us coffee. Um, at the moment, if the company that runs our railways goes on strike, there isn't an alternative. And there could be, and there should be. So my argument is, let's not just have only one company providing all the trains that day, that year, that 10 years um, at your station. Let's have three or four or five or six companies. So if the next train is cancelled because they're on strike, the one after that, provided by a different company that isn't on strike, will still turn up. You've got choice, um, and it means that, therefore, you can decide, all right, well, I, 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 I either can't catch that one because it's cancelled, or it may be still working, but I don't like that service because it's more expensive. I'll go on the one afterwards, or it may be more crowded. I'll go on the one afterwards, or whatever it might be. You then got the kind of choice which you take for granted, and I take for granted, and all your listeners take for granted in every other walk of life, but for some reason we don't have it when it comes to trains. Now, why is that right? And, do you and think the answer is it's just not. We've just paid, again on my line, it's only been lip service to it because you've had Grand Central and Hull trains that, frankly, it isn't that much competition because yeah. they'll, well, yeah, but they'll, they'll, re- two, they'll be two trains well, a no, day. For, or- for, those, for those listeners who, who, aren't, who don't use the East Coast Main Line, um, Hull, Central, uh, sorry, sorry, Hull trains and Grand Central are um, the tiny examples of the kind of thing that I'm describing that is already happening, but it's only one or two trains a day. Um, and the really interesting thing is, if you talk to people in Hull, they think that Hull trains is mar- marvellous. They think it's magical. It's brilliant. It gives them the kind of choice which we all take for granted in everything else. Now, why should that only be one or two trains a day? Why can't it be most trains a day? Um, and if you do that, then all of a sudden, it, again, it makes the customer the king or the queen. Because if we don't like it, we don't have to grumble and write to our MP or complain to somebody on a form that may or may not get filled out and then goodness knows what happens. We can just do what we take for granted in every other walk of life and just say, stuff it, I'm not having this one, I'll take the next train instead and I'll vote with my feet, I will vote with my wallet, um, I'll vote with my ticket. Um, And at that point, the ones who are rubbish 
will know pretty quickly because no one's going to want to travel on their trains um, or, or fewer people will um, and they'll get the message much much faster. We, we touched upon housing, uh, let's go back there. You, you, you've written about a concept which seems very interesting about building up and not out. How, uh, t- tell the listeners a little bit about yeah. what, what you envision. So, so th- th- this is one of the, the ideas about how you could build a lot more houses and make the whole thing a lot cheaper and more affordable for everybody under 35 or 40 and therefore make it easier to both afford to buy or to rent. Um, and to do that, you know, the, the basic problem is we haven't built enough houses in this country for about 30 or 40 years. hasn't mattered who's in government, and we've got to build a lot more houses. But equally, um, you know, they're not making any more green fields and countryside anymore, so we can't just carry on um, expanding and increasing commuter belts everywhere and, and concreting over green fields. What are we going to do instead? Well, the answer, I think, is to uh, make our towns seaside towns, market towns, the edges of cities, um, just a, a, a whole lot less low rise. So at the moment, if you think of most, most towns, they're about, on average, they're two stories tall. Yeah? Um, some houses are three, some houses are one, but on average they're two. If you said that you can let those, those places um, build up to about four stories tall, so not skyscrapers, the size of a, of a Regency or Victorian townhouse, three or four stories tall, still below the tree line, um, and you say that they've got to conform to a local standard, you know, n- n- the local style, whatever that is, and your local council can say it's all built out of Cotswold stone or it's all, it's all you know, um, red brick or it's all um, whatever it might be. They can define what those styles are. And if you do that, you're allowed to build without having to apply for planning permission. You can just get on and do it. Still got to be safe. You've still got to make sure the thing complies with you know, building regulations so it's, it stays up and all those things. But broadly speaking, you don't have to worry about the planning permission because it's all predefined. If you stay within these guidelines, then you, have to, then you can just get on and do it. If you want to do something different, you'll still have to apply for planning permission. But you know, all of a sudden, you're going to have hugely increased the amount of buildable space for new homes in Britain. As I said, most towns are two stories tall. If you say most towns all of a sudden could be four stories tall if they follow these style guides, um, then you've basically almost doubled the amount of house, house building space in this country in one stroke, in one day. Now, if I tell you that normally under the existing system, we add about one or 2% through the existing planning permission system each year. So if I nearly double it in one go, just imagine the huge flood of new build houses, apartments that you'll have in towns and city centres. And it'll also, incidentally, it'll reduce commuting because people will be able to live closer to work if they want to. They may not want to, but they'll have the option um, in future. Um, And it will mean um, it's greener because they don't have to to, to travel so far. I mean, it'll also inject fresh life into an awful lot of town and city centres. Um, who, which at the moment are a bit of a retail desert, you know, after five o'clock or six o'clock, the place pretty much, um, you know, large chunks of it um, just die. And you could have somewhere which has got much more buzz and life to it, um, you know, alive after five is the phrase. So it's got all sorts of advantages, but the, the central one is all of a sudden it allows us to build an awful lot more in a way which will look great, it'll look pretty, it'll look beautiful, it'll make our towns and city centres really nice places to live and to work. Um, but equally, it takes the pressure off green fields because it'll mean all of a sudden that you don't have to build all over the green field that's on the edge of town. Um, that will then be safe. It'll be protected because people will instead be able to build really quickly, really easily, but beautifully in the middle of town instead. The final chapter is called uh, 
morals and merit restoring legitimacy. The section that was of particular interest to me, uh, which again I said we'd come, come back to, was what on stopping uh, fake news. You've suggested a new information act to ensure analogue laws cover digital media. Tell us a little bit more about what you think that would mean. Well, so we, we've already talked a little yeah. bit about about this notion that when so, when something pops up in your in your in your Facebook feed, in your news feed, um, you, you aren't necessarily sure if it comes from an, an unfamiliar source. You don't know whether or not to trust it. So one of the things you could do is to make sure that there's this trust rating. So is something likely to be true or not? But there's a whole series of other things that we need to do as well. So, and interestingly, um, some of these things now look like they are beginning to be you know, discussed and, and, and in the works you know, uh, here in Westminster too. So uh, yeah, in a general election, um, historically, if you produce a, an election leaflet, you've got to say who it's by, um, who wrote it, who published it. And so it's, if it's full of lies and you know, illegal statements, um, then, then the authorities know who to go and arrest and who, they can, who, they can, who can get sued or put in jail for it. Up until now, um, and actually, this last the last general election this started to change, um, but it's about it's high time. It should have changed earlier. Up until now, those same rules about an election leaflet didn't apply to a Facebook ad um, or to you know to an online advertisement at all. And so, therefore, you could have all sorts of things which could have been produced by anybody from the Russians um, through to some you know uh, through to uh, uh, you know, uh, an unofficial um, campaigning organisation campaigning either in favour or against you or me if we were standing as candidates. Um, and there was there was nothing. It was completely the wild west. You know, there, there was nothing to make that that stuff reliable um, and accurate. And all I'm saying is that the whole series of rules about how our elections are run um, and how you know, basic information is put out there, which worked okay in a pre-digital world, um, and just need to be updated so that those same rules about who who wrote this leaflet and who published it and who do I go and arrest if it's if it's awful. They need to apply as well to Facebook ads or anything else online, um, so that we can have the same protections and the same you know, legal bulwarks that have been in place and we take for granted elsewhere. They should apply in the online world as well. I like your. your I'm going to quote you now. Your, your statement: A free press means that uh, different editorial teams will entirely legitimately report the same facts in widely diverging ways, and that people can filter what they see, so, yeah. and I quote, you know, we're only exposed to a, a single version of reality. In extreme cases, this can mean a diet of exclusively alt-right or indeed alt-left or jihadist views. You've also added that uh, you know, it, it eroded Britain's centre ground and created a less cohesive, more splintered and divided society instead. Yeah. So is, is that a fair, uh, just as an example, that, that you know, if a populist site, a, a Guido Fawkes site, or indeed you know, Tory radio with the name on the tin, it's, it's certainly coming from a perspective. Is that bad, or Fox News, is mm. that bad because people are then just consuming views that they agree with? So... so um uh, that's a really important question, isn't it? Because, you know, in a in a in a free society, you know, we should be able to have lots and lots of Tory radios, Guido Fawkes, and their equivalents on the left as well. That's that's part of having a you know, a, a proper democracy. Um, but when when Facebook, for example, creates each of us each of us on Facebook, I'm, I'm using them as an example, but this is this is true of other of other social media as well. Um, their, their algorithms say, you know. Um, John Penrose is interested in the following things, and they tailor what I see. You know, they create this thing called a filter bubble, and my filter bubble, the, the, the tailored feed that I get, 
is different from your tailored feed and the different from the tailored feed that every single one of your listeners at Tory Radio gets to. We all have this personalized set of filters which, which somewhere like uh, Facebook have worked out from what we do online and it's very, very sensible because it means that we see more of what we're interested in and what we like. But there's a danger to that when it comes to news because if it means that we only ever see the stuff that we agree with, there's never a there's never balance. There's never a countervailing view to say, hang on a sec, there is another perspective here. You or I may disagree with it, but we probably ought to hear it once in a while just to remind us that the entire world doesn't think exactly the same way that I do. And otherwise you end up with an echo chamber and you only ever hear from people you agree with and it can just mean that, you know, for some of us at least, we just get progressively more and more extreme um, because nobody ever says, hang on a second, Penrose, you know, what, what you're talking about here is, is you're, you're, you're taking leave of your senses here, you're, you're going well off the reservation. And for most of us, that happens in, in, you know, in the non-digital world because we talk to members of our family and they put us right pretty fast, or our mates down the pub or whatever it might be. Do you think the problem but online is that people don't see it happening? Yeah. And, and, and so know. I guess my question is, is, is perhaps as big, as big a danger as that is that perhaps you know, what we would call our mainstream media, going down the route of presenting views, not news, isn't that as bad an example as a Tory radio podcast with a slant where something that's purportedly saying that it is a, a balance, it isn't. Yeah, well, so, so part of it is, is yeah, the people need to know. So they know if they're, they're, they're getting an entirely slanted thing. You know, if, if I pick up a copy of, uh, of the Daily Mirror, I know I'm going to get a left of centre view, um, and they're not trying to pretend they are. If I get something in my news feed on a social media site and they aren't you know, being as upfront about it, then I don't know what I'm, that I'm getting something that happens to be slanted. And it may be actually that Facebook won't know how it's being slanted because it's all being done by an algorithm um, and it's you know, based on what, you know, what, what stuff I've, I've, have I been buying fishing tackle last, you know, yesterday or, or not. So what actually I'm saying is what we should be doing is taking a, a, a rule that already exists for broadcasters. If, if you go to the BBC or ITV or Sky and you watch their TV news, they have a duty to be balanced. So you won't just get one side of it, you'll get the other side of an argument as well. And all I'm saying is that for our online news feeds as well, they should have the same duty. So that, that um, filter bubble, that algorithm that picks out stuff that I might be interested in, every once in a while, it ought to throw in some stuff which is from the other side of the debate mm -hmm. as well in order just to make sure that I'm only I, I'm getting both sides and I'm not just hearing you know, stuff I already agree with. I want to touch on, uh, we've slightly mentioned actually, on, on formats of things, which I know you've not written about, but I recently did an interview with uh, Lord, Lord Mann, John Mann, who I stood oh, yeah. against 15 years ago in Bassett Law, so we, we, we actually were... Well, he, he, he's all right for a Labour yeah, guy. We, 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 right. we, we, we sounded like, I guess, two old duffers in the sense that we were lamenting how things had changed for the worse, and by that, I, I specifically, we were talking about how we both had absolutely robust political debates on issues, and then there was mutual respect at the end. You know, we yeah. always got on with each other, so much so that we've kept in touch with each other over the years. And we also you know, had a little bit of a moan about some of the, not particularly whether it was bias or not on the BBC, but actually how formats have changed. And I'm thinking of the light sometimes of question time where it's it seems to have moved it absolutely can be balanced but it seems to be much more about less about discussing issues 
in an adult way, just like hopefully this interview mm. is a lot longer than you would get on the BBC or on, on, on mm. radio stations. It's less about discussing, discussing the issues and more about almost aggressive questioning from presenters and point scoring, which then doesn't achieve anything, which mm. plays to the crowd, which plays to ratings. So I guess my question is also, do you think it's not just about online that needs to be examined, but sometimes some formats... I need to be looked at so that you know we get I hope it doesn't sound like you know we all want to go back to the past where we always thought you know political debate was a little bit better because every generation probably thinks that yeah, yeah. I'm, but, I'm sure that's right yeah. but but there there with this with a push for ratings there is there seems to be less of that where you can actually hear both sides of an argument that's not cut down to 10 seconds well i mean i th- i think it would be wonderful um if we had of if we had both yeah i mean there will be you know all of us on occasions where we're rushing from from you know one meeting to another or from or we're rushing to pick up kids from school or whatever it might be we're all tight on time and at that point actually the the really tightly edited very very short quick summary is what we want um but then on occasions as well it's the equivalent of you know sitting down with the sunday newspapers um and you've got a bit more time and you want to look at something in more depth and you need to make sure that that's out there as well. And all of us on different occasions will want both those things at different times of the day or different times of the week. And so, so yeah, I, I think it would be great if we had a mixture of formats. So uh, I agree with you. I think it's always really dangerous for any generation to, to say, oh, well, things were always better, you know, in, in, in my day. I think that, that's just a, a recipe for sounding like an old duffer. You're right. But... But At least I've got, I've got some self-awareness in there about <laughs> yeah, myself. But, but, yeah, but, but you're also right that... Uh, I think most people will want at different times to be able to access both those things at different levels of detail, yeah. Well, John, these are fascinating proposals. Do you want to remind people again where they can go and have a read of them? Come to my website, um, johnpenrose.org, and have a look at it. It's called A Shining City on a Hill. You can download it or just uh, skim through it on on screen. Um, And the whole huge advantage of it is it's free. And I guess my final, very very final question is, what what does 2020 hold for John Penrose? Um... I think more of the same. I'm. Uh, I mean, it'll depend on you know what, what the government's doing and uh, and and you know the results of reshuffles and all these other bits and pieces. But um, I want to do. I, I think that the next big question, which we all need to look at, is about social mobility. It's about leveling up, um, and how we do that. It's easy to talk about it, but the practicalities about how you do that in a Tory way, in a way which maximises everybody's opportunity. As the Prime Minister says, talent is evenly distributed around the country, opportunity is not. If we can fix that, then we will have made a huge change for the better in British society. That will be a heck of a start, not just the 2020s, but for post-Brexit Britain too. Well, I hope you'll uh, invite me back to talk to you about that at some point. But for today, thank you for talking to us. Thank you. To discuss sponsorship opportunities, email editor at toryradio.com. Do it now.